Jurassic Park cast. The Jurassic Park podcast, where we chat about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also not about that too. Thanks for joining me today. I'm Ryan Rogers, and I'm also a big, dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to This is the Pilot episode, recorded here in wintry Ontario on February 11th, 2022. Thank you for joining me today. So as an introduction, I guess uh, let me tell you a little bit about myself, and then a bit about this podcast, and then we can get started with just uh, a taste of what on earth this thing is going to sound like going forward. First off, a huge thanks to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E. Check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. And if you can find it anywhere else, listen to it there too. Uh, that song is a sample from the song Sacrifice to the Inhuman Creature, which is uh, just awesome. And, and please join me in enjoying it, that's for sure. Here we are on the podcast. Why am I doing this? Well, let me answer that by, by starting with, with how Jurassic Park and I met. So I don't exactly remember when it was, but there obviously must have been some television commercial break. Um, it may have been during the Super Bowl, but I don't recall. But that I first became aware of this thing called Jurassic Park. Before that, there was no such thing. And then suddenly there was. The trailer for the movie came on, and I'll never forget how all time stopped. And I was enthralled with the idea that dinosaurs were going to be in a big movie. Two parts of that trailer stand out the first images of that film that I'll never forget. And they were Dr. Alan Grant sitting at that boardroom table saying, how can we have the slightest idea what to expect? And then, of course, the, the Tyrannosaurus foot stepping into the mud beside the Land Cruisers. Um, after that, my, my whole life was a whirlwind. Uh, there was dinosaur everything for two or three years. The Toronto Raptors were named after the movie. Toronto had this Gobi Desert exhibition featuring all kinds of fossils and new discoveries uh, from from the Gobi Desert. National Geographic magazine and Time magazine had a bunch of issues focusing on dinosaurs, and Spielberg made a slew of awful themed, uh, dinosaur-themed movies, uh, the best of which was probably The Land Before Time, but the worst of which could have easily been We're Back, A Dinosaur Story. But uh, after Jurassic Park, each new dinosaur movie that came out came with like this hope that it also could be really great. Because um, there was proof. Jurassic Park proved it could be done and not just come out like as like a silly puppets or something like carnosaur <laughs> but what a time to love dinosaurs for me i was only 12 years old when that when that trailer came out and you could see that it was based on the novel jeez i might have been 11 years old when the trailer came out <laughs> and and then in the trailer it said you know it, if you looked into the movie it said it was based on a novel by some guy who who i didn't know of at the time and now everybody knows his name Michael Crichton. So there was this book. I didn't have to wait until June, June 11th, 1993, to watch this thing. I could just read it. The first copy I got was from an old neighbor back in Nobleton, Ontario, named Mr. Slater. His first name could have been John. I have no idea. But uh, he had a copy of the novel, and I guess my mom somehow arranged that I could borrow it from him. So I marched down Midway. That's the name of the street, just Midway, uh, to the Slater household uh, down on the cul-de-sac and borrowed that book from him. So maybe, let me try and make, you know give you a taste of what it's like to be 12-year-old me back in 1993. 
Um, first, I remember putting a retainer in my mouth while I was talking to Mr. Slater at his front door, and he was pretty perturbed as to why on earth someone would take that moment to insert an instrument of that nature into their mouth. And he was right to be worried about that. I don't know why I did that. Uh, the second thing I remember clearly was I was at the time playing way too much Super Mario World for the Super Nintendo system. I can recall while I was reading the novel, still seeing Super Mario, his image was like burned on my eyeballs because I could still see him running and jumping uh, over the paragraphs and the words, <laughs> things like that while I was reading the book, complete with the little boink sound he makes when he jumps. So yeah, me, preteen, uh, 1990s, there you go. The internet, I, I searched, uh, tells me that Jurassic Park came out on a video cassette uh, in October 1994. I would have got it the second uh, it was possible. <laughs> I reserved my copy by buying it in advance uh, because I was so scared that they'd sell out from a Jumbo Video in Bolton. Again, that's the 90s, right? A video video store. It's called Jumbo Video. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, they were they rented movies named Elephant for a Mascot, and they served you popcorn. You could have popcorn while you browse, which is pretty cool. So I had this coupon. Uh, it was, I guess, a receipt uh, for, for the movie, and... Um, it, it was shaped, kind of looked like a coupon, um, maybe like a movie ticket, something like that. I that showing that I reserved, uh, that I was going to have the movie. Of course, by the time it came to present that receipt to redeem my copy of the the cassette, I had lost it. I remember I'd put it somewhere foolproof, but it wasn't foolproof enough. Uh, it turns out, the clerk honored my memory of the receipt, and I got a copy of the video anyhow. I think they took your phone number back then for their records, so they would have shown, ah yes, this phone number has purchased a copy, so I think that's how it worked. And the phone number, of course, in 1993 or 94 was only seven digits long, which is cool. And then I watched that movie so much, I freeze-framed all the moments with the Tyrannosaurus so I could draw it just like it was in the movie. Especially that moment when, uh, when the dinosaurs ruled the Earth banner drops from the ceiling, uh, spoiler alert, <laughs> and T-Rex saves the day. And also, uh, when he's attacking the stampede in Gallimimus, I, I copied that T-Rex all the time. I had it paused on those scenes so much that the VCR's projector bulb burned the tape. Just a little, so it was like discolored, it wasn't a hole. But man, that Tyrannosaurus was the best. The best T-Rex in film as of 93, and, and possibly since. I mean, he was incredible. She was incredible, I guess. She wasn't needlessly anthropomorphized. She wasn't needlessly larger than life. She wasn't especially villainous. She was just awesome, romping around doing dinosaur things. And it's hard not to love that, especially as a kid. But this podcast isn't about the movie. It's about the book. And can you guess where I found my receipt for the cassette? It was in my copy of the novel. I still have that copy of the novel. It's black with uh, the red and yellow theatrical releases logo. Uh, clear tape holds it together at the spine, white cracks and folds are worn across the front and the back covers. And if you're not careful, the first 40 pages drop out of the binding. The first edition was released in November 1990. That's when Michael Crichton released the first book. Uh, but my first copy uh, is from a 35th printing uh, from March 1993 with a cover price of $6.99 US and $7.99 Canadian. I would have got that edition right in that spring of 1993, so it may have been hot off the presses uh, when I got my hands on it, which is pretty cool. I have two other copies. One is a white, well-read Ballantine 1991 edition with a cover price of $5.99, $6.99 Canadian. And the second is a more modern-looking gray and red edition with a cover price of $7.99, uh, $10.99 Canadian, 
which features a, a website, for randomhouse.com, making it demonstrably more modern than the earlier editions, which would have been out before websites were of any practical use. It's this latest edition, the gray one, that I've documented most of this podcast from. The page numbers will correspond with that, the gray book. All right, so what are we going to do with this podcast here? We're going to get into the dinosaurs. We're going to talk about the, the characters, the plots, hubris, cultural references, literary style and techniques. We're going to track everything as we go and we'll hopefully have some fun doing it. This is like, I've got an English degree and I've always wanted to just, you know, rip this book apart and know everything about it. So, you know, here we go. How do you tackle like something like this in a podcast? I'll be damned if I know, but I'm going to start by just going chapter by chapter and hoping to dig out the neat details and identify where to pay a bit more attention as we go. So what do we cover in this first episode? Well, um, without getting into the, the first couple chapters or anything like that, how about we just talk about the book? Um, we'll go from you know the front cover to the, to the introduction here. Start off, great cover art that everyone has become familiar with. Um, it's uh, designed by a person named Chip kid based this this image off of a specimen amnh 5027 housed at the american museum of natural history in new york city that is a skeleton of a tyrannosaurus rex inside that cover is a list of other novels by michael crichton and the isbn uh, and that's followed by three pages of reviews and then another list of, uh, of novels by crichton the book Timeline is the oldest quote-unquote novel in the list, which was released in 1999. So the printing of my gray edition must be from around 2000 or 2001. So that's interesting. The next book that would have been on this list uh, would have been State of Fear, which came out in 2002. But that's not on here because the book came out first. My black edition, printed in 1993, lists Rising Sun as the most modern book released by Crichton. And that would have been 1992, and that's congruent with the printing date. My black copy says that more than 4 million copies of the book are in print, and it features all the theatrical release details. So this uh, black edition came out uh, as a, uh, an accompanying piece to the film in 93. My white edition lists Sphere as the most recent book by the author, and that would be from 1987, meaning that book might be old enough to have been printed before the movie came out, which is really cool. Um, it reads that Jurassic Park was one of the New York Times best sellers and had been on the list for three months, so if this book were released in November 1990, the first edition, my white copy would be at its earliest three months after that, so February 91. So we know it was from 1991. That's pretty cool. All these are quote-unquote older editions of the book and lack some of the updates that uh, more modern editions would feature. And that includes uh, one of the dinosaurs actually had its name changed since uh, the first printings. So in these editions, the Microceratus is called Microceratops. Apparently the name Microceratops was already bestowed upon an extant species of wasp. Uh, so that had to be renamed. And the etymology changes from... Uh, small horn face, which is microceratops, small horn face. It changes to small horned, kind of microceratus. Just talks about the horn instead of the horn face. Nonetheless, it's not a big deal, but technically it is more correct. Uh, my white copy is from 1991 and it still has a typo in it. Uh, we'll cover that when we get there. That typo is edited from subsequent printings. My black and gray editions have been fixed. <laughs> we'll see if there's anything else we can find uh, as we go. And you can check your copy if you have one for the type of one when we get there. Uh, finally, the dedication is to A-M and T, who, I believe, are Anne-Marie and Taylor Crichton. And they, those would be his children with his first wife. And then the last thing that we have in this 
uh, episode to cover would be the epigraphs. Uh, there are two epigraphs that come before the book starts properly. The first is, quote, Reptiles are abhorrent because their cold body, pale color, cartilaginous skeleton, filthy skin, fierce aspect, calculating eye, offensive smell, harsh voice, squalid habitation, and terrible venom. Wherefore, their creator has not exerted his powers to make many of them. That's by Linnaeus in 1797. Linnaeus is Carolus Linnaeus, the Latin rendering of a Swedish botanist, zoologist, taxonomist, and physician who formalized binomial nomenclature. So basically, if you name a species new to science, you're naming it by the process formalized by Linnaeus. Uh, he's the father of modern taxonomy, they tell me. Uh, there are two parts to this quote. The first, describing the abhorrent qualities of a reptile. Beyond pale color, these are all uncivilized qualities, which a proper European would separate themselves by. They're not necessarily inhuman qualities. A man may be f have filthy skin, an offensive smell, a harsh voice, and have squalid habitation, but these are disgusting, inhuman base qualities. There's a xenophobia to this quote as well, which we can appreciate. Reptiles are so alien, they're discomforting. Imagine like a roiling tangle of a hundred snakes crawling over each other and chameleons licking their eyeballs and stuff like that. It's gross. And we, of course, when we say gross, we mean it's cool, but it's cool because it's gross. <laughs> Indeed, this quote presents reptiles as repulsive, disgusting, alien animals that are constituted of the worst types of qualities that no proper human would aspire to. Uh, in fact, a proper human is civilized by being the opposite of, of most of these qualities. You would, you would presume, uh, perhaps, as being argued by Linnaeus, anyhow. Uh, the second half of this quote is a judgment call. What by for the grace of God, man was given dominion over the world and all its creatures, and Linnaeus says, thank goodness that the Creator hasn't spent his energy making many reptiles for us to dominate, because we don't like them. In fact, it suggests that the Creator God himself opted against making many reptiles because they suck so much. Even God doesn't like them. In Christian mythology, of course, the snake is the reptilian anthropomorphization of the devil, temptation, and what led to mankind's original sin, casting us from the Garden of Eden, banning us from a utopian existence, stricken with mortality, because we are conceived in sin and therefore are doomed to death as punishment. Thanks a lot, Mom and Dad. So... That just gives us another reason we shouldn't like reptiles if we needed one. Uh, this quote primes us with two thoughts entering the novel. One, we are not comfortable with reptiles because they're strange and alien to us. And second, there's a divinity or a goodness, a Christian quality to being whatever the opposite of a reptile is. And the second epigraph is a little bit more simple. It says, you cannot recall a new form of life. It's by Erwin Chargaff, and it's uh, from 200 years later, 1972. Erwin Chargaff was a biochemist and a DNA researcher who says this quote while publishing specifically on nucleic acids. I think my research says, but I, I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, Chargaff's quote used by Crichton comes from a letter to the editor of Science, where he says in its entirety, quote, you can stop splitting the atom. You can stop visiting the moon. You may even decide not to kill entire populations by the use of a few bombs, but you cannot recall a new form of life. This is a geneticist warning against pursuing genetic modifications and generating genetic mutations because life is unpredictable and potentially catastrophic. While it's argued that eradicating human disease is undeniably good, in the context of generating unpredictable mutations in the service of eradicating human disease, one risks catastrophe. 
Is he really warning against catastrophe in this quote? The analogous examples he suggests uh, that you can control include splitting an atom, which may result in a nuclear explosion. Visiting the moon, which they did. They visited in 1969 and tried again in 1970 with Apollo 13, which went catastrophically wrong. Houston, we have a problem. And then they stopped. See, you can stop landing on the moon. If it's too dangerous, you can just stop. 1972, so 72, 69, 70, yeah, 1972, he's likely referring to these specific spe uh, scientific risky pursuits. Landing on the moon wasn't easy. And finally, and somewhat bitterly, it sounds, he says, if mankind weren't too jaded and divisive, we could even choose to stop dropping atom bombs on each other. So he's kind of got a dark perspective there. But these are three examples of scientific pursuit that have mortal, catastrophic consequences, he argues, uh, that can be stopped by an act of will at any time. However, his warning is that you cannot recall a new form of life. No act of will can stop life, even in the face of catastrophe. Mutations to everything from as small as viruses and bacteria on up are consequentially risky because they are alive. What is the meaning of life? It's to survive and propagate the species. Life does this at all costs or faces extinction. And life doesn't choose extinction. Malcolm has a quote later on. In, Dr. Ian Malcolm from the book, of course, uh, has a quote later on about life finding a way. And I, I think we could easily argue that Malcolm is a student of Chargaff's school of thought. Or certainly that Crichton was likely channeling Chargaff in his writing of Malcolm. But we'll see. Maybe we'll argue that later. Uh, simply put, this quote is akin to a very common expression or trope that we're familiar with. You know, letting the cat out of the bag, or opening Pandora's box, or conversely trying to put toothpaste back in the tube. These are all tropes on the same warning, that if the risks don't outweigh the benefits, it's best not to do it. With Chargaff talking about cloning dinosaurs? Yeah, I think... No, he wasn't, but it's no surprise that Crichton was well-read in scientific doomsayers prophesying end times as a consequence of science and technology gone awry. That seems to be Crichton's wheelhouse, right? But that, so that brings us to the end of the epigraphs uh, before we jump into the next section of the book. And that'll be the introduction. So I want to, you know, sign off today saying, you know, thank you for joining me in this pilot episode. If you want to read along in the book and add some thoughts uh, to what we've been discussing on the show or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything that you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me. I'm at Ryan S. Rogers at gmail.com you can email that all you like please be kind if you'd like to be a guest drop me a line and we can try and set something up we can rehash tear down gush over and chit chat about any part of the book or also not the book all you'd like the jurassic park cast is part of the spring chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties including the spring chickens funny pages tomb of the undead graphic novel the second laps graphic novelettes the infantry and the worst of them all the king street capers you can find links to all that baggage in my show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.ca or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers. Or you can find me on Twitter at RogersRyan22. Thank you dearly for tuning into the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park. And also not that too. Until next time.